We'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 28. This is God's Word. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege to have it accessible to us, to be understood in our own language, to have resources, to, to dig deeper. God, we pray that we do not squander it, that we do not waste it tonight, that your word would, would go forth and that it would not return to you void, but it would accomplish your purposes in our hearts, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, and that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so as we move forward through Romans chapter 8 here, uh, we're, we're getting, like I said last week, to the part of Romans 8 where it gets a little gritty. It gets a little gritty. It, 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 it acknowledges the brokenness and the struggle in the world. Uh, Romans chapter 8 Although it begins with this glorious declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. And we say, Amen, Hallelujah, praise God. But it doesn't just then usher us off into some sort of fairy land where things are easy. But it quickly gets to the recognition that there is death in the world. That there is suffering in the world. There is brokenness that you groan in this world. And not just that you groan, but the world itself groans in this suffering. And so the good news about the scripture is that it, it knows exactly the world that you're living in. But it's not some made-up fairy tale world, but it's the real world in which you live, and it acknowledges it as it is. And the gospel addresses it head-on. And Jesus comes to deal with these real, really difficult issues. Um, in your life and in this world. Uh, so much so that, that he felt the major glow of suffering. That he himself suffered and he groaned in weakness. Uh, so God is not ignorant to your sufferings this morning or this evening. Uh, but he knows 
he is addressing it head on in the scripture. So we'll we'll look at this passage. It's kind of a long passage. There's a lot of it, a lot there. We, you can really go as deep theology as you want to go in this passage, or you just uh, kind of skate on the surface here. We're going to try to kind of go in the middle. Uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to dive into every little nook and cranny, um, but we're going to try to really get what's there out of it. And so we're going to look at it in three points. Um, pretty obvious laid out here. We have creation groans in verses 19 through 22, Christians groan in verses 23 through 25, and the spirit groans in verses 26 through 27, a bit 28 here. Uh, the title is Groaning for Glory. Groaning for Glory. So just a few preliminary observations before we kind of get into it. Uh, first, you need to see that connection to the preceding verse on the necessity of suffering with Christ in order to be glorified um, with Him. Now, we covered this last week. It says, Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, here it is, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. And last week we talked about that necessity of identifying with Christ in suffering if you're going to identify with Him in, in glory. And that the suffering has to come first. You've got to have the cross before you can have the crown. And so then he moves here in verse 19 and following uh, with this comparison of these sufferings, these present sufferings, with the future glory. So if we're suffering now in order to be glorified with Christ later, Paul says, I don't consider these things worthy of even comparing. Right? That there is no comparison between the sufferings that we experience now and this greater glory that is coming um, in the future. Now, if you're suffering and someone says, there's no comparison from what you're going through to what you're going to face in the future, you might say, well, that's not very sensitive of you. Right? You're belittling my suffering. And Paul is not belittling your suffering here. What he's doing is magnifying the greatness of the glory that is coming. See, it's not as if you just have little little sufferings, you know, and you're just too hung up on them. No, the reality is, no, these are great sufferings. These are grievous sufferings that, that, that we experience in this world. And, and it shouldn't be this way. And it's a result of sin and, and the curse and the fall. And Jesus came to undo that. And so this is no little thing that we suffer in this world. But the future glorious reality that God has for us, for those who he loves, is just that much better. It's just that much better that there is no comparison. No comparison. And so the kind of main point of going through this is, if that is true, if those future glories, if that... Um, future glory that's to be revealed to us is not worth comparing with the sufferings that we experience in this present time, then don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Continue to persevere through your sufferings in patient pursuit of the infinitely greater glory that is to be revealed to us. So that's kind of the main point of this whole passage. If you just don't take anything away from it, it's this. Your sufferings may be heavy, may be hard, you may groan. You may even get to the point where you don't even know how to pray. But the future, 
glory that God has for those who are His, it's not worth comparing. It's so far better. So press on, don't lose heart, continue to persevere. But thankfully, it doesn't leave us with that. I mean, if that's all it said, that would be enough, right? That would be enough to say, yeah, persevere. Something far better is going. But, but Paul comes along and the scripture comes along to give us something to help us in the meantime. Give us more understanding. So the rest of this passage is going to kind of look at, like, what is it? In, in the meantime, as we wait on this future glory, what, what, what do we do? He says, we grow. We grow. We see this first one in verses 19 through 22, which creation itself groans. Creation groans under the curse of the fall. It says, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation itself is longing for something. It's groaning for something. It's hoping for something better. And, and obviously this is a personification of, of creation in the, in the natural world. And so I'm taking the creation here in this passage, and this is by far the, the most common interpretation here, to be the non-human creation. This would be the, the universe, the world in it. All the creation apart from humanity. And, and, and Paul is given it sort of uh, anthropomorphic, uh, using anthropomorphic language here. It says that creation was subjected to futility and it is in bondage to corruption. So let's, let's look at those two. Subjected to futility. What is futility? Futility is like is vanity, is pointlessness, is emptiness. It's like you strive after something, like you're trying to accomplish something, and then you just never get there. You never get there. It's like, you know, uh, trying to be a skinny person like me and to, to put on a whole bunch of weight. It's like I can eat hamburgers all day long, but it's, it's futile. My genetics are working against me, right? Paul says the creation is subjected to futility. The creation turns and goes, but it's ultimately emptiness. There's a brokenness there. It says it is in bondage to corruption. So we see this, this idea of, of corruption and death and decay that, that marks the world around us. You, almost everywhere you look, you see decay and, and corruption. So why is this? Why is the creation subjected to futility and bondage to corruption? He says, well, it wasn't willingly. It wasn't like the creation signed up for this. He says, hey, 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 uh, I want to be in bondage to corruption, please. God, thank you. No, it wasn't. It wasn't willingly. But it says it was because of him who subjected it. Because of him who subjected it. So who is him? Who is him in this the sentence, because of him who subjected it. And I admit, I've thought about this a lot. Um, this is one of those passages I'm super familiar with, and you get ready to preach it, and you're like, oh yeah, I know this day in, you know, day out. I can stand up there and talk about that anytime. But then when you actually sit down and start looking at it, things like this pop up. 
because of him who's objective. Who's him? I don't know. What? Figure it out. Hmm. And so I'm going to say, I'm not sure who Paul is referring to exactly. It's either Adam or either God. So we've got two options. The him is either Adam or God. That it was Adam who subjected creation to this bondage to corruption or, and this uh, futility. Or he's referring to God and his decree and God giving this uh, situation uh, to creation. And I give this because in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, we, we, we see the, the fall of man toward Adam and Eve's sin and then God gives these covenant curses uh, to them for, for breaking the covenant there in the garden. And one of those curses that is delivered to Adam in Genesis 3.17, and it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. And he goes on to talk about how there will be thorns and thistles, and you'll, you'll eat from it, from the, the toil and the sweat of your brow. Right? It's no longer this, uh, this, this earth that is sort of just giving itself freely and abundantly to you for your life, but now it's going to be a struggle. Now there's going to be toil. There's going to be futility. There's going to be corruption. Right? And so, is it Adam or is it God? Uh, Matthew Henry, his commentary, he says, Adam did it meritoriously. The creatures being delivered to him when he by sin delivered himself, he delivered them likewise into the bondage of corruption. And then he says, God did it judicially. He passed a sentence upon the creatures for the sin of man by which they became subject. So this is to Henry's point about the same thing. It could, depending on which angle you look at it, it could be either Adam or it could be God. Um, and so what we see here is that God created all things, right? And then he placed Adam as head over all creation. Adam was to take dominion. Right, to steward it. Everything was given to him to steward. He named the animals. Right, He was to, uh, to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth and fill it. So God gave the stewardship of creation to man. It's, it's his now. And so when man sins and brings death into the world, it affects everything that's under his stewardship, under his dominion, under his responsibility. And so we can see it that Adam subjected creation to this growing and this futility. But we also acknowledge that it's God under his sovereign judgment, under his sovereign judgment. So what I think it's helpful to look at this is to see the intimate relationship between the two, where man is responsible but God is also sovereign in dealing out these judgments. You see, that we, can, we can justly and rightly say that it was both Adam and God who subjected creation to this utility. And so uh, that's going to be important uh, as we continue to go in this, in this chapter uh, that we see that. And so as creation is in this fallen, corrupted state, uh, we have this thing called natural evil. Natural evil is a good category for you to have. This is a, this is natural evil. Is this? It's it's tornadoes 
killing things, killing people, and destroying things. It is uh, animals fighting and killing. You know, it's it's the Nat Geo documentary. You know, where the cheetah chases down the poor little antelope. You know, and eats it. And like oh, this is wrong, but it's also so right. What's going on here? This is natural evil. This is natural evil. There, there's no morality there inherently. This is the result of brokenness and sin and death in the world that our father Adam brought into the world. And catch this, that each of us have participated in and further in our own sin. Right? So there is a category for natural evil. This might be important, like in some of your biology classes, where your professor says, you know, we can see here that the lion um, has sharp teeth because it's evolved you know, to kill and eat and all these things. And so you Christians who believe that you know, God created everything and it was peaceful and good, what do you do with the sharp teeth on a lion? Right, these teeth were obviously for cutting flesh and killing. You know, what do you do with that as Christians? And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that God knows and knew from the outset that there would be a fall, that there would be a need, and that there would be this type of world, and you put these animals to perform this role. And there's nothing that says that a shark toothed animal can't eat uh, grass and restore new heavens and new earth either. Right? Uh, but we do, as Christians, have a category for natural evil, and this finds itself, uh, its origins in this fall of man, in this sin. When sin came into the world, death came through sin. And that's not just human death. So what's, a, what's an application? Something we can apply in this is this. Consider the sinfulness of sin. That, that sin is not some small little thing. But it's cosmic. That sin brings decay and futility even to the non-human world. It brings suffering everywhere. And we participate in that every time we sin. So there's a, a great application. Consider the sinfulness of sin and its effects on everything. So he's acknowledged this groaning that creation experiences and then we're encouraged that it's not a hopeless groaning. It's not a hopeless groaning, but it's like, likened to labor pains. Uh, in other words, this is intense suffering. But there's a goal on the other side. Like there's something better, that it's not just suffering for suffering's sake, but it's producing something glorious, something real. Uh, it's, I, I mean, I've witnessed this four times now. My wife's crazy, she just keeps having kids after all that suffering. And, uh, you know, y'all know uh, Jeff Foxworthy, right? Jeff Foxworthy. One of my favorite bits from Jeff Foxworth, he says that you know people say that um, having a baby is the most painful thing that you can experience, and the second thing is kidney stones. And he says that I dispute that. And he asks, you know, how many women in the room have had a baby? People raise their hand. He says, how many have had two? People raise their hand. He says, see, I can't think of a single man who's had kidney stones who waits a few years later and says, you know what? I might want to try that again. <laughs> but labor pains are one of the most intense sufferings that we have 
and, and that is again tied back to Genesis chapter three and the curse. But when it's over, there's a glorious reward. That is it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. Uh, and that's what our suffering is. Christians, all the suffering in this world is like. But it's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of tears. It's producing something great, beautiful, and glorious, you see. Uh, and that's hopeful. And that's, that's hopeful. And, and, and creation is personified here. Look at that language. Um, where is it at? Verse, the end of verse 20. But because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free. So the idea here is that even creation has hopefulness to it of being set free from this bondage. And the last kind of point here before we move on is the gospel is a cosmic redemption story. The gospel is not just about you getting your spirit, you getting your soul into heaven when you die. The gospel is about the reconciliation and the redemption of everything, literally everything, made to have peace with God, to have shalom, and true glory. And that is accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ because look at that passage again. What is creation waiting on? What is it hoping for? To be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of what? The glory of the children of God. This revealing of the, the sons of God we see in verse 19. That is the, the glorification of Christians. The creation is waiting on and, and so looking forward to an eager expectation. So this gospel of redemption is a cosmic redemption story. Now, he moves on in verse 23. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Not only does creation grow, but Christians grow. See these in verses 23 through 25. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons. In other words, you don't escape suffering because you're a Christian. You might think that if your sins are forgiven on the cross, if Jesus died on the cross, to forgive your sins, to bear the wrath of God in your place, which we all agree that is true, then I should be delivered from suffering, right? If suffering is a consequence of sin, and my sins have been forgiven, why do I still suffer now that I'm a Christian? Well, salvation is applied in stages. It's applied in stages. Uh, you see throughout Scripture of salvation being, some refer to it that you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. This past, present, future. You have been saved. Jesus died literally on the cross in history, atoning for real sins. And you've been justified by that work of redemption. But you're also being saved. You're being sanctified. You're having that work of redemption applied to you in your life, but you're becoming more and more like Jesus and more morally sanctified. And there's a later stage in which you will be saved, in which you will be perfectly sinless, 
and your body will be restored to something beyond what we can imagine in this fallen world. And so salvation is applied to stages. And in this stage, between justification and glorification, this stage of sanctification involves suffering because suffering is one of the best tools in producing that sanctification. And so suffering is necessary for this salvation to be applied to us according to God's will. There's this already not yet aspect of redemption. And we see that kind of in this passage because if you're listening closely, something might have caught your ear here in verse 23 where it says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Well, didn't you just say a couple weeks ago that we had been adopted? What is this about? And so I think what's going on here is, so are we waiting for adoption or have we been adopted? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's already not yet sort of thing. And I think what he's getting at here, this adoption that we're waiting for, is not that legal declaration that you are the son of God, but it's that experience of knowing your father fully. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That even as I have been fully known. So he's saying that in a way similar to a way in which God fully knows me, then I will know him fully. Fully into our capacities. But I believe there's, there will never fully know God because he's incomprehensible. You can never fully know an infinite being. But as much as we can fully know him, our knowledge would be full of him. But now we see through a mirror dimly. And so I think he's getting at this. We're, we're waiting for that full-on embrace, full-on knowledge of God, our Father, without the complicating circumstances of sin that disrupt that fellowship and disrupt our experience of that fellowship. Um, and so I think that's what he's getting at. So we wait eagerly for that, to be made a son of God to be made glorious. Because right now, there's like on the outside, we, we're not, we don't look very glorious. I don't care how cute you think you are. <laughs> All right? We, we aren't that glorious. Um, but when we're glorified, when we're made completely new, we will be radiant. Christ is. We will be glorious. I, I believe that it was uh, Lee and Duncan I heard say this. That if, if somehow you could see me, if I were here now in my glorified state, glorified body before you and you're still fallen, you would be tempted to worship me because I'd be so much like Jesus. The, not because of anything in myself, but because of the glorified state that I'm in compared to the fallen state that we all experience now. But there's this far better thing and we're eagerly awaiting for that. Which leads to that second thing there in verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Our souls have been redeemed, but we're waiting on this redemption of our bodies. And I, and I believe 
that that redemption of our bodies is actually qualifying the adoption as sons. Let me say that again. The, re, the phrase, the redemption of our bodies, is Paul qualifying what he means by adoption as sons. Um, and so that being adopted as sons will be known publicly and obviously when we receive our glorified bodies. And so I've used this term glorified and glorification a bit. I haven't really defined it. We haven't really gotten there yet. Um, so let me give you a little rundown of this. The doctrine of glorification is the idea that our bodies are restored to their intended created design. That your bodies are made perfect without any effect or consequence of sin. Um, that you would be fully human in every way possible, perfectly glorified. Without any weakness due to sin, without any pain, without any suffering, uh, unlike anything that you know. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's compared to the glory of a, uh, a plant sprouting from a seed. That our, our bodies in this fallen world is like a seed goes into the ground and it dies and then this plant sprouts up from that seed. Now, the plant is far more glorious than the seed. It's, it's way more beautiful, way more uh, productive. But there's continuity. They're, they're the same thing. Uh, and so Paul says it's like that. Our glorified bodies will be as much more glorious as a plant is to a seed. So this is glorification. This is the goal. This is the end of our salvation. To be completely rescued from every effect of sin. So one thing uh, this means is that Christians aren't dualists. Dualists. So dualism is the idea uh, that uh, spirituality, spiritual things are good. Physical, material things are bad. Uh, this is very common in uh, Christianity's sort of earliest opponent, Gnosticism. Uh, and it shows up throughout history. There's, dualism kind of rears its head in every generation. And it's this idea that, you know, if you're going to be holy, spiritual, you don't want to associate with, like, material things, especially things concerning the body. You see this a lot in the Christian tradition with the restrictions on, on sex. So, like, for example, think about the, uh, the Catholic priests who can't marry, as remain celibate. And there's a bit of uh, dualism there, because the idea is that sexuality is icky, it's dirty, it's very uh, material, it's very physical. And so that can't be spiritual, that can't bring glory to God as a spiritual being. And Christians, that's not what we believe, because we believe that God created both the spirit and the physical. Uh, and so these things are united together. When God saves our spirits and our souls, uh, that's just part of the story. The final consummation of redemption is the salvation of our bodies as well. So we are uh, dualists. We care about the physical as well as the spiritual. And we believe that you can glorify God with both. In fact, that we are called to glorify with both the physical and uh, the spiritual. And so there's this longing for things to be made right. This growing of, of hope. This growing of hope. Uh, look at verse 24. 
25. It says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, this is not a hopeless nor pointless groaning. So your suffering as a believer is doing something. It's not in vain. It's not hopeless. It's not pointless. And this is good news. I, I don't know what you do with your sufferings if you're truly an atheist. Because that means all your sufferings is just random chance. Meaningless pain. Blind, pitiless indifference. I believe it's Dawkins who said that. The, the, the universe. Blind, pitiless indifference. But as Christians, we know that our sufferings aren't meaningless. They aren't pointless. It's not blind, pitiless indifference, but it's actually doing something. It's purposeful. It's intentional. We may not understand it, and we may not be able to tell exactly what it is, but we know that it is doing something. And therefore, when we groan under our sufferings, is a groaning in hope. It's a groaning knowing that God is doing something. Earlier in Romans chapter 5, we read this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. Suffering is doing something. It's producing something in us. producing character, endurance, ultimately hope. It's sanctifying. Verse 28 Romans 8 here says all things work together for good which includes the sufferings that all the sufferings that you experience as a believer one thing that we do know for certain is that these things work together for your good they're not purposeless but they're actually good they're actually good so suffering and hope by faith isn't purposeless it's worthy of rejoicing in, but it isn't easy. It's worthy of rejoicing in, but it isn't easy. For this reason, Jesus hasn't left us without a helper and a comforter. He's given us his spirit who groans with us and in us, through us, according to the good will of God. That's what we'll see in the next section. Verse 26 through 27. Spirit groans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Are you thankful for that? Are you willing to humble yourself? to receive that help and to admit that you need help. Because if you're, if you're not willing to humble yourself and acknowledge your need of help, 
you miss out on hell. But the good news is Jesus has sent us a helper and comfort. You see this in John 14, uh, verses 25 through 27. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's telling them about his uh, the fact that he would soon be leaving, going away, that he would be dying. And you hear these things. He's instructing them on what they need to know before this takes place. And he says this in verse 25, John 14. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Isn't that good? Jesus knows the sufferings that these disciples would face. He knows the, the persecutions and the tribulations. He knew that they would need a helper. He knew that they would be drug into the, the courts. They'd be drug in before Roman governors. They'd be marched out to bear their own crosses. And they would need a helper. And he says, the Father will send him. The Father will send this helper in my name. It's beautiful Trinitarian picture here. Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son. And what does the Spirit do? He brings to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How does the Spirit help you in your weakness? He brings to remembrance the Word of God. He brings the remembrance of the things that Jesus has said. He brings to remembrance the peace that comes with knowing Jesus and that Jesus gives. It's peace I give you. My peace I give you. I, I think Jesus is saying, when I give you my spirit, I give you my peace. If you need peace in your suffering, the Holy Spirit is the one who is that peace. He brings it to you. And he does this by bringing to remembrance all that Jesus said. So therefore, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. So going back to Romans 8, what is the particular weakness in Paul's mind in Romans 8? What is the particular weakness? And would you consider this a weakness? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's the weakness that Paul's referring to here. We don't know how to pray. Would you consider that your weakness? But you don't know how to pray as we ought. Paul says this is the this is the weakness. This is where you know uh, the rubber hits the road. Where you're in suffering and you don't know how to pray or what to pray for. But the Spirit of comes and helps in that weakness. I think intense suffering it brings us to this place of not knowing what to pray for. It's like. Do I pray for relief or to persevere? Do I ask for healing or for strength? 
do I pray for the conversion of my persecutors? Or do I pray for justice? And sometimes in this broken world, you don't even know where to begin praying. Like, have you been, ever been confronted with a situation that's so messed up that you, you just go, I don't even know how to start praying for this. I don't even know where to begin. It's so messed up. It's so broken. There's sick, sickness and suffering and sin everywhere, and I don't even know how to get into this. That's where we're confronted with our real weakness, because we don't fully know the mind of God. We're waiting for that adoption of sons. We don't fully know that mind of God, but you know who does? Spirit. In fact, I've kind of got it backwards. It says that God knows the mind of the Spirit, but they're, they're one being. There's unity with it. So sometimes in this broken world, you don't even know where to begin praying, and that's when the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. That he himself prays for us in groanings too deep for words. Spirit groanings for us. What is intercession? Intercession is praying on behalf of someone else. That's simply what that is. It's praying for somebody. And the Spirit does that. Um, so how does the Spirit intercede for us in groanings too deep? Is it, is it? I really wrestled with this this week. Is this some um, supernatural thing in which the spirit, like we just kind of give up, and the spirit prays for us, like an act of prayer in our behalf? I think maybe, but I think it could also be the spirit moving our spirits to then pray according to the will of God. And I, and I think that, based on the context of Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 16, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You catch that? You have received the Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And this is that, that cry of Father, Daddy, right? This is a, a cry of dependency, of needing help. So is that an example of the Spirit growing for us, moving us to pray? It says, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God through that crying out that it bears through that. And this is another one of those passages, this is the part that I was like, I'm just not sure. Part of me, if I had to pick a side right now, I would say that I think this is, this particular groaning too deep for words is those, are those moments where you just don't know what to say and you're just, that in that sigh, in that wordlessness that the Spirit of God intercedes. And that's where I, I want to lean, but I think there is exegetical case here that this is the Spirit prompting our prayers as well. The word for without words here, or too deep for words, is alelatos. 
aleletos. It's literally wordless or without words. And so, uh, what's going on? There's a third option for this girl in two different words. And this is a common one. This is a common proof text for a private prayer language, uh, for speaking in tongues. And that when you don't know what to pray, then you just pray in tongues. And that would be a heavenly language that the Spirit is praying through you. And that Spirit-led prayer in tongues is according to the will of God. Um, so that's a, that's a common proof text. That. I, I don't think that's what this is talking about um, because this is not um, in groanings in another heavenly language. It is groanings without words uh, and that it is in line with the groanings of the first two groanings uh, as well here. Uh, so I don't, I don't think this is a, a private prayer language thing here. But I think among the faithful who would take this position, there's an element of truth. That I don't know what to pray. And I have faith. And I'm going to trust the Spirit of God does. And, and what they think is obedience to God's Word, they, they have this private privilege in this Quasalelio where they speak gibberish um, because they think it's the Holy Spirit. But I don't think you have to manufacture it. Because I think what this is getting at is that know where the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, where you, you want to pray, you want to intercede for someone or yourself, and you just don't know where to begin, that the spirit intercedes for those within whom he dwells in union with their own spirits according to the will of God. Spirit needs no input from the flesh in the redemption of those whom he loves. Not at any stage of salvation, beginning, middle, or end. Salvation is of the Lord, and it's all of grace, even at these points. So when you're pushed beyond your strength and comprehension in the face of suffering, be comforted that a simple sigh of faith hope for the resurrection is a powerful prayer in the purposes of the triune God. God doesn't need you to manufacture something according to your flesh in order to be gracious to you. Haven't we already established that? Whether that is you thinking of some spiritual sounding prayer to move God or if this is you speaking in tongues in order to move God I, don't, I think both of those missed the boat. Because God does not need that input from our flesh. He needs faith and a, a groaning of hope for the resurrection. And a confidence that His will is good and His will will be done. And a desire for that. Like, I don't know what's going on in your guys' lives. But I want God's good will to be done in your life. So as I pray for you, I pray that God would accomplish His purposes in and through you, and that you uh, would know His goodness through those things. And, and 
just a little bit. We're going to touch on uh, verse 28 next uh, next week. But we have to hit it here this week too. Because what is that will of God that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God? What is it? Paul says, and we know. We know what it is. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. For those that are called according to His purpose. So the Spirit brings these prayers home, brings these sufferings home so that we know that it's accomplishing good. And not just good generally, but your good. I've heard preachers before um, try to avoid sounding like a prosperity preacher and saying, well, this is just good. God works all things together for good, not necessarily your good. And I think that's just completely missing the ball because that's exactly what it's saying. All things work together for good. Okay? There's something after that comma. For those who are called according to his purpose. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you. You are called according to his purpose. Therefore, all things work together for your good. Even your suffering. And that's the only reason you can have hope in your sufferings. Because you know it's for your good. It's for your good. So as we close, close up tonight, four application points, I guess, uh, to bring this home. As you, as you meditate on this passage tonight and the days to follow, allow the brokenness of this world to be a reminder to you that it is broken. And that your longing for its restoration is good and holy and not in vain. So when you see broken things around you, and you long for them to be restored and made right, that's good. That is a right roaming. It's holy. And God sent Jesus into this world to fix that. And, and this, guys, is, is one touch point for evangelism, and this is one place where it doesn't matter how secular you are, everyone knows that the world is broken and shouldn't be like this. Right? Everyone has this longing for the way things are supposed to be. Right? It doesn't matter if you're an evolutionary, you know, have evolutionary origins as your worldview or creation. You all will admit it's not supposed to be this way. Even if you might say with your mouth, yeah, this is just chance. There's no purpose. But you know deep down that you're longing for something better. And you have an idea of what that might be like. Right? So allow that brokenness that you see to be a reminder to you that it is broken. And long for its restoration in Christ. And point that out to others. Second thing is remember that your body in the physical world was created good and is part of God's eternal plan. Your body in the physical world is created good and is part of God's eternal plan. So steward it um, in that way. 
steward it as if it is. Next, as you suffer until that final day, suffer in hope. Suffer in confidence that God is accomplishing His good purpose in and through you. And that it, it is also good for you. Suffer well. For in this life we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And in so doing, we identify with the crucified Christ and present His sufferings to a world in need of His redemption. So suffer well. And I'm going to add a new point here to this. Clint, he was preparing to put in here. But this is why it's important to be part of a local church, especially as young people. Because the average young person doesn't experience a whole lot of suffering. Now, some of you have experienced a whole lot of suffering. But the average young person hasn't yet experienced a whole lot of suffering. But when you live life in a local church with older folks who've been around a little while, you know their sufferings, and you watch them suffer and suffer well. It's one of the most encouraging things to watch a, a faithful, elderly brother or sister in Christ finish that race well. Right? Because one day that's going to be you. Right? And so it's such an encouragement, and it's very important. Because they, they're preaching to you. They're preaching to you in the way that they suffer well. And that can be an encouragement to you for when it's your turn. For when it's your turn to preach to others as you suffer well. And finally, pray. Pray, pray. And when you don't know how to pray, offer a sigh of hope to the one who searches hearts. And trust the intercession of the Holy Spirit who will not fail in bringing about your good and God's glory. A pretty simple sermon. This world is broken. Sufferings are real, but they're not meaningless. They're full of purpose, and the purpose is for your good and God's glory in Christ. So we groan, but we groan in hope. So let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us hope. And so often our eyes can be uh, drifted off of your promises, drifted off of uh, the vision of the future, the glorious resurrection that you have promised, and that you have uh, given us a, a glimpse into and a promise uh, and a guarantee of in the resurrection of Christ and our own uh, regenerations possession of the Spirit. Our eyes tend to look and to focus on the things that are hard and the things that are broken. Things that cause pain. So God, I pray that as our eyes are focused on those things, uh, that we would remember the truth of the Gospel. We would remember the truth that you are accomplishing your purposes in us through these sufferings. They are refining us, that they're making us more like Jesus, that we will be uh, more glorious and more happy on the other side of our sufferings uh, than we would have been if they had not been part of our lives. So God, I pray that you equip us all to suffer well in the days that are ahead for us.
you have, you have written them all out. They're all in your book, God. There's nothing that we can do to change those days. So help us to receive them uh, graciously uh, in a way that is a compelling witness to those who are lost, those who are suffering uh, under meaninglessness. God, I pray that you bring uh, much futility to those on this campus who believe that their suffering is pointless. There is no meaning. That there is no God. God, I pray that they would taste the bitterness of that futility. And that it would lead them to cling to Christ. They would, they would find uh, hope in Him and resurrection in Him. And God, I pray that you would send your people to those people who are hurting and need this message. You would do it, that you would receive glory in it all. Praise in Jesus' name.